Welcome to the second edition of Supreme Myths Podcast. Um, my first my first podcast was with Jack Balkin, and we talked a lot about constitutional law in the Supreme Court. The name of my series, Supreme Myths, would suggest that, we'll go, that it's going to be a series devoted to mostly the Supreme Court and constitutional law, but not entirely. And I am so excited today to have as a guest someone who's not going to talk a lot about the Supreme Court and constitutional law, but instead going to talk about uh, race and identity and things that could not be more timely. So my guest today is Nancy Leong from the uh, Sturm College of Law at the University of Denver. I think I have that right. Nancy is a prolific scholar whose articles have appeared in all the leading law reviews, Harvard, Yale, California, you name them. Uh, Nancy is one of my favorite people in the academy because not only is she a great scholar, but she's a great dissenter. In fact, I think I'm going to call her the great dissenter during this podcast. Um, <laughs> she, she, she loves to shake things up in a positive way, and Lord knows the Legal Academy needs that. Um, and then most of all, she has a book coming out, which I think is going to be a, a path-breaking book in, in many, many ways, called Identity Capitalist. And I can't wait to talk about that book with Nancy. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, that's one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. So thank you for that, too. Well, let's start, first of all, um, with a, a more personal question that, that before we get to your book. Um, how, how did you come to want to spend a lot of your scholarly life talking about race, talking about identity, um, talking about in-groups and out-groups? How, how did that develop? So let me just start with a generalization, which is I think that everything that anybody writes, uh, whether it is a novelist or somebody in the legal academy, is autobiographical to some degree, whether it's obvious or whether it's a little bit less obvious. I think that everything we, we write is autobiographical to some extent. And, you know, I mean, I think growing up as a biracial Asian and white person in an overwhelmingly white suburb of Denver, Littleton, Colorado, um, identity and race were always uh, salient to me in a way that was really unavoidable. Like it would come to me even if I didn't go looking for it. And then moving from there to other predominantly white environments, um, you know, uh, the college and the law school that I went to were also both predominantly white. I mean, I feel like race and gender and the way that people perceive each other and uh, treat each other on the basis of those characteristics have always been present in my life, um, even though my, my, my views on those things have changed a lot over the years. And so I think that this was really a natural um, kind of segue for me for this uh, thing that had been a part of my personal experience for literally my entire life to become part of my academic agenda as well. I, I should have mentioned Nancy went to Northwestern undergraduate and who got her law yes. degree at Stanford. When I think of universities that might be better, might not be the right word, but might be more suitable uh, suitable for, for people of color and for diverse environments, Northwestern and Stanford would be very top of the list uh, without knowing the truth of that. That, that's, that would be my guess. Do, do you think those two places are like that or do I have that wrong? I think that's a great question and gets to the heart of some of the things that I talk about in my book, which is that numerically a school can look as though it's doing very well when it comes to diversity, right? The numbers 
can look very good, but it may be that the climate is not good for people of color and that the relationship among people of different races on that campus may not be particularly, um, I mean, it may not be overtly hostile. It may be hostile, but it may not be overtly hostile, but there may just not be um, very much um, interracial interaction. And so while both Stanford and Northwestern, I think have um, diversity numbers that look good across a whole you know, variety of identity categories, um, I found Northwestern to be a very racially segregated place. Um, there was not a lot of interracial interaction. And I think that this was particularly salient to me as somebody who is biracial, right? And who, I mean, I think is identified by both the way I look and my name is Asian, but who also grew up in this predominantly white environment surrounded by white people. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that I was in this kind of um, border space between Asian and white. And that really got me interested um, in a more systemic way about race relations and how these dynamics play out in colleges and universities and law schools. I, I think your point that that every that most of what we write is autobiographical, um, not for this conversation, but I need to think a lot more about that about my work because <laughs> everything I think you I too, write. You too, Eric. Is, your book is autobiographical. <laughs> I don't know how exactly, but I bet I could. I bet I could tell you how. <laughs> okay, well, that, well, okay, but this is about you. But I, I will think more about that. You've already given me something to think about in the first four minutes of the podcast. Um, I read the prologue to your book and was an identity capitalist. And I got to say, it's rare that I, I know. I know it's a trade book, but it's obviously a trade book written by a law professor. And and I know the audience, I hope, will be much bigger than the legal world. And I'm sure it will be. But it's still a book written by a law professor. And I, I have almost never op- – I've, re- I've read – 500 of those in my life, something happened in the prologue to your book that, that touched me in a way that virtually no legal books have ever done before. And that's the story you tell about, the very personal story, you tell about the wedding you attended. And I, I would like you to, to tell that story because it's it, it really, it, it hit me hard. I have to say it hit me hard. So I start the book and um, I don't want to give away too much here, but this, you know, I mean, this is where the whole thing started, um, just intellectually, as well as, um, you know, in, in terms of the book itself. Um, I started putting the pieces of what I call identity capitalism together at a wedding I was invited to. I was invited to this wedding by a friend of mine who I knew from college, but had not kept in particularly close touch with over the years. And I was a little bit surprised to be invited, Um, but I like weddings. And (laughs) after I was invited, I went. And at the wedding, I mean, it was lovely, you know, and we're drinking and we're dancing and everybody's having a good time. And at one point, my friend came over to me and said, I'm so glad you could make it. It's so great to see you. All of this, you know, just a very typical conversation that people have at weddings. And then she said, after all, if you hadn't been able to attend, the wedding would have been all white. And... um, (laughs) I, I just paused for a second. Of course, I didn't second. say anything, I, I just right? Pa- just pa- but, pause, and empty pause for a second. That moment must have been just so upsetting. It was more, I was more just dumbfounded. Yeah, okay. And then I didn't react because you don't want to ruin somebody's wedding day by, um, 
you know, questioning their racial sensitivity or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. And, but I was, I was dumbfounded. And so I'm not usually at a loss for words, but I was at that moment. And so I think I just kind of laughed. And then she waved the photographer over and had him take a picture of us together. And that picture was all over social media the next few days. And so I felt, I really felt, and I think I might even use this phrase in the book. I felt like I was part of the color scheme, right? (laughs) Like she had, she had selected um, certain flowers, you know, tablecloths, bridesmaids, dresses, And then she also wanted the guests at her wedding to be the right color, which is not all white. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that people have um, motives for relating to each other all the time that are not completely um, pure, right? You might like somebody as a human being and also think that they will contribute to the diversity of your wedding in some way, to the optics of your wedding in some way. Um, but I think that that, that incident, um, this, this relatively personal incident, really um, kind of uh, was the first domino and touched off my view that this uh, happens in a lot of different areas of life, right? Like whether it's in terms of friendship, um, I don't know if you want to talk about this now, but whether it's in terms of friendship or whether it's in the workplace, um, the ways that people use the identity of other people in their lives, well, so I, and it, 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 your book did so, did something that all good books should do. It made me think and reflect about my experience. Um, and I just want to say quickly, you know, I've been rethinking. I, I had a, I had a roommate in law school for two years um, who happened to be African American, um, and he happened to be a very wealthy African American from a wealthy family with two doctors. And both in my classroom and in my personal life, and he was a good friend. I've come to realize after reading your, your work that there is a part of me, <laughs> and I hate to say this, that is proud <laughs> of the idea um, that Wilbert and I were such good friends and, and, and good roommates that I think would be different were he not African-American. And I, I, I never thought about it that way until I read your book, and now I'm rethinking the stories I tell about us and, and how I tell them. I, so I just want to say – when a book makes one reflect on one's personal life, you're already off to a good start <laughs> in the first paragraph. Well, I, um, I, I do hope that this book will cause people to do a lot of reflecting. Yeah. And I guess if I could just interject, yeah. I mean, I one of the, the things that I hope people will take away from the book is that we are all identity capitalists, right? Like I am as well. <laughs> and I tell some stories about that a little bit later in the yeah. book. Um, I mean, I think the way society is set up, um, there are certain incentives to engage in what I call identity capitalism, right? Well, let's like this, define it. This, let's, this way let's, of, let's define uh, it. Let's define it. How do you define identity capitalism? Sure. So identity capitalism is members of one identity group profiting from the identities of another group. But usually there's a power dynamic built into that. So it could be, um, for example, uh, kind of an in-group, the insiders, right? Let's say white people profiting from the identities of people of color, or maybe um, if men are a numerical majority in some environment, um, these men profiting from having a woman around. You know, I mean, I think that there's lots of different ways that this can happen. Some of them are person to person, individual, and some of these are within an institution. But so the idea is that members of one identity group are benefiting from the identity of somebody who's not in their group. It's a it's a very powerful idea, I think. Um, and running throughout the chapters of your book that I read and your other work um, also, 
is a tension that I find both unbelievably important going forward as a law school, but intellectually as well, the tension between diversity and equality. Because we're, we're for both things. I mean, both things are good. <laughs> but you write a lot about the tension between them. And can you talk a little about that? So I would maybe reframe this a little bit and say that it's not so much the tension between diversity and equality, although that is part of it, but the tension between the appearance of diversity and like true substantive equality. And going back to the way we started the conversation, um, Northwestern University, right, where I did my undergrad, is certainly diverse. Now, are students of color and white students equal on that campus? Um, I would say the answer to that is probably no and would require, you know, going into that, that institution's um, kind of dynamics in a way that I don't think is necess- necess- necessary right now. Um, but so, uh, you know, what I really want to call attention to here is that just diversity, right? Like just having the numbers is not enough. Like there's something substantive that has to happen as well in order for there to be what we can call true substantive equality. The appearance of diversity is a big theme, I think, throughout throughout your work. And um, because most people watching this would be in some way affiliated with the law or, or legal profession or whatever, um, you have been very outspoken, uh, and I've and, and I hope I've supported this as I could on social media um, about all about about legal panels and legal conferences that have a token person of color, but really is not diverse in any meaning. <coughs> excuse me, in any meaningful way, and uh, I assume you have been. Um, at places where you're the token person of color. and, and uh, Yes, yeah. I have been the token person of color <laughs> now and then. <laughs> I, I, Nancy, I'm really curious how that, I think, I think people listening, especially white people, need to know, I need to know how that makes you feel. Because, and I don't want this to be about me, but I'll mention more in a second why I feel this way, but how does that make you feel when you show up and there are nine white men and you, you know, at, at a conference? How does that make you feel? Um, so I, I think that it places a unique kind of pressure on somebody when they are there in the role of diversity panelist. In other words, if one of the nine white men says something that isn't the brightest or maybe isn't the most well supported, um, people will say, oh, like that person isn't that smart or that person isn't having a good day. If I say something that's not that bright or well-supported or Never whatever happened, it might be. Never happened, by the way, but go ahead. Uh, say that again? Never happens, but go ahead. Oh, it's it, it, it happens now and then. But so, <laughs> you know, like if I say something that's not my best comment ever, I will worry that um, I showed why women were not more well-represented on the panel because they found a woman and all she did was say things that were not on point, that were not relevant, And so I think that one thing that tokenizing people does is it places this um, pressure on them to perform not only on their own behalf, but on behalf of the groups that they're there representing. So I think that's one thing. I mean, I think another thing it does, and this is, I think, particularly important given um, the state of race relations in the country right now, is that when somebody believes they are on a panel simply 
for the optics of it, simply because the people who organize the panel don't want it to be an all-white panel or an all-male panel or both, um, that fosters cynicism and resentment. Like, you don't think that I'm worth having here, except that you don't want anybody to call you out on having a panel that's not diverse. And so I think that that doesn't really do anything to improve race relations in the country. I mean, I think if anything, maybe it makes it a little bit worse. And so, you know, I mean, I would be I would be hopeful that people would think about this as they're putting together panels and conferences. Um, you know, just the effect that it has on the person who's actually there in the role of um, adding diversity to the panel. Twice in my life, I've been invited to Fairless Society weekends where there were 12 conservatives and me. Um, and eight hours a day, two days in a row. And what I realized at the end of the second one, I behaved well, which for me is unusual, until the end of the second one when they started talking about abortion and I did not behave well. Um, it hit me <laughs> because it hit me. I really wasn't there I was there mostly to show people their views were right. <laughs> like, I, like I could say something that no one else would agree with. They would all tear it apart. And, and, and the really – that's the only – that was my purpose there in addition to optics, in addition to optics. And being a white male, I very rarely feel that. I almost never feel that way. I can't imagine the pressure of that on people of color on a continuous basis throughout one's 20, 30-year career. I think it would weigh very heavy. I, I just do. Yeah, I think that it does weigh heavy, um, maybe less so now that I have tenure and um, I'm going to purposely describe this in a slightly um, neutral way. But so I have recently um, found myself being the only woman and only person of color on a panel and have used some of my time on the panel to call attention to that fact which um, didn't necessarily endear me to the organizers, but um, <laughs> at the same time, I saw people in the audience nodding along and I saw that they were getting it. And so I think that there's a way for people of color to um, engage in some um, identity capitalism judo, if you will, like and <laughs> to turn the tokenization around on the people who are, who are starting it. Right. So um, I thought a really powerful part of your book um, was about, and, and this is, I'm promoting the book now. In the book are, are, are Justice Kavanaugh, um, uh, Kaepernick, um, and uh, other celebrities who you bring in. But I want to talk about Kavanaugh for a second. Sure. It strikes me that he was, that whole display at his confirmation hearing was such a display of identity capitalism when it comes to women. And, and you put that out very well. Explain what you meant by that in the book. Well, so I think that um, now Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing was a pageant of identity <laughs> capitalism yeah. um, from sort of the first round of hearings where he was introduced by um, various attorneys and former clerks who were women to um you know, the, to, to uh, the fact that he had um, some of the girls in the basketball team that he coaches um, sitting behind him at one point. Um, and then in the in the in the second part of the hearings, right after the allegations of sexual assault came out, the fact that he had that he had, um, you know, women um, friends sitting behind him at the at the hearings 
um, the fact that he had women writing op-eds on his behalf. I mean, the whole thing um, was this just um, display that was designed to communicate the idea, women support me. And the reason that he chose to engage in this display, of course, was um, to maybe the, the maybe the right word is refute to sort of undermine the allegations of sexual assault. But also, you know, I mean, I think women's groups had had concerns about Kavanaugh's nomination um, for a long time, right? Like they were concerned about uh, how he might rule on cases relating to abortion. And so the idea is, no, I'm good for women. Women like me. I'm good for women. I will protect women's rights. I will do what is best for women. Um, look at all these women. Um, and uh, so I think that it was this um, usage of identity, right? This usage of the identity of various women in his life, women from his high school, his own daughters, um, to promote a message about him, to communicate a message about him. And I think it is reasonably clear he's not going to vote in ways that most women would <laughs> would appreciate and, and uh, wait till the first gun case comes. But and it, it already has. I know. Paging Susan Collins, right? <laughs> yes, exa 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 exactly. Um, and you also talk about Nike and you talk about Kaepernick. And, and so, you know, I'm a big sports fan. And when Nike did that commercial, we're talking about, of course, Colin Kaepernick and him kneeling at the football games – being blackballed, and there's no other word for it, blackballed by the NFL. And then Nike supports him 100%. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And because I'm a natural skeptic, you know, of course, Nike wants to make a buck. But still, I thought that was risky. What's your take on that? I agree. I agree. And I think that Colin Kaepernick and his relationship with Nike and with the NFL is one of the more interesting and complicated examples of identity capitalism in the book, because certainly Nike is profiting from Colin Kaepernick's identity and also the way that he's chosen to perform his identity, right? I mean, he has made salient his identity as a black man. And I think that Nike has found a way um, to profit from that. You know, I mean, I think that Nike has taken a risk and I think that there's a lot that's commendable in Nike doing this. At the same time, I think it's worth maintaining a healthy dose of um, <laughs> skepticism about this. I mean, Phil Knight, who is the founder of Nike and still um, owns a lot of stock in the company, donates primarily to Republican um, Congress people, right? The people who are not supporting the kinds of policies that Colin Kaepernick um, would favor with respect to police. And so there's a way in which the profits that Nike is making from Colin Kaepernick's Im image and his identity as a young black man, there's a way in which those profits are being used to support um, policies that Colin Kaepernick would vehemently oppose. And, you know, I mean, I think that identity capitalism is, is, is complicated and we can acknowledge that it's complicated and nuanced. Um, do I think it's better that Nike did this than just ignoring Co Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, I think it is. Do I think it's totally unproblematic? Unpro no, I think it's worth talking about uh, maybe some of the ways in which it's problematic. You wrote your book, which is in the final stages, um, prior to the events of the last, you know, three and four weeks. Um, and I couldn't help reading through your book. What do you think if any, the impact will be of, of 
the horrific murder of, of George Floyd and, and everything that's happened in the last few weeks, what do you think that effect that will have, if any, going forward on identity, on identity capitalist, identity, identity politics in the future? Identity politics. Um, well, so let me just say that I do think that this time feels different and time will tell whether it is different, but some things have happened already. Like um, in Colorado, right? Like my square state in the middle of the country. And I'm a fourth generation <laughs> It's not a square Colorado, state. So marijuana is legal. Wait a second. You, you, you guys were way yeah. out of the game on marijuana. Nothing square about that. <laughs> So we abolished qualified immunity. I mean, it took like a week and it got through the legislature. And I mean, it's only for state claims, right? Um, that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole yeah. other project. Yeah. But so, I mean, there are actual tangible things happening right now that have never happened before. Um, and I think that that's really exciting. In terms of identity politics, um, I mean, there's so much to say here. One thing I have noticed is that I feel like um, brands, um, you know, uh, everything from um, fashion to appliances to um, social media companies, like just every brand um, feels pressure to say something about the Black Lives Matter movement and the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, right? And um, I think that that's never really been the case before either. And so I see that as a positive thing um, that so many of these brands are speaking out. At the same time, I think that some of the things that the brands are doing to demonstrate their commitment to Black Lives Matter are substantive and others are a little bit more um, for show, right? They're a little bit more about the optics. Like, oh, um, we made an Instagram post with only black models wearing our clothes, <laughs> which P.S. you can click here and buy them on our website, right? I mean, that's not, that's not substantive, you know? I mean, I think maybe the next level up from that is we're going to donate 50% of profits to, let's say, the NAACP or something like that. Um, so there's a whole spectrum of things that brands are doing from things that are purely performative to things that are actually substantive. And, um, you know, I mean, I think there are certainly a lot of interesting examples of identity capitalism around um, the Black Lives Matter movement right now. I mean, one of the things about one of the things about writing a book that um, is a trade book and that is about culture, um, there's a lot of pop culture in the book. Um, so, that, you know, be warned. Anybody, anybody who's interested in the book, there's 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 a lot of pop culture in there. I mean, one of the things about writing a book like this is that um, there's never a good time to stop writing because things just keep happening. Like there's more pop culture there. Are, I mean, there, there could be a whole chapter just on this particular um, moment around the protests. And I think that the absence of, of this will be felt in the book. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 I do think that um, perhaps it, it opens the door to um, kind of a, a sequel, if yeah, you will. It'll be a second edition. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a hard question for you that, that, that um, sure. I'm a little reluctant to ask, but we're friends, so I'm going to ask it. Um, you know, I have a small reputation of being a Supreme Court critic. And that's kind of my brand. Uh, I've been called that by people. And yeah. um, it's rare that, you know, and that's what I get asked about and things. Um, it, I, I, I find you in a, in a little bit of a catch-22. And, and I wonder how this is going to play out. I'm glad you wrote a trade book because I'm nervous about academics who are going to ask you the following question like I'm about to ask you because I am an academic. I think the book is so important and so interesting about how people profit off identity politics 
identity capitalism, sometimes in good ways, a lot of times in bad ways, you're clearly profiting off identity capitalism by, and identity politics by writing about it and by getting a book contract about it. And you're going to, be, and you're going to go around the country talking about it. Um, and I'm wondering if you've thought through that irony is too strong a word, but that idea. Oh, I certainly have thought about this. And Eric, I'm actually a step ahead of you. I talk about this in the conclusion. Um, <laughs> now you have to, to, of course, purchase and read the book to see what <laughs> I say about myself. But um, one of the things um, that I try to make clear throughout the book is that I don't exempt myself from any of this. Like we live in a society that is built on identity capitalism, where different identities have particular values. And um, when I kind of shopped this book around to find a publisher, um, did I play up my own identity as an Asian American woman? In fact, the first Asian American full professor at the University of Denver School of Law. Um, you bet I did, right? And, um, you know, is, is Stanford University Press, who's publishing the book, are they going to um, maybe include that in some of the promotional materials? I bet they are. Um, I'm an identity capitalist and so are they. Now, I mean, I think the, the, the dynamics are complicated here um, and we could dissect that a little bit more. We could talk about, well, you know, I mean, it's unavoidable. So I might as well embrace it in this particular situation because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the cost of getting this conversation going. Um, but I, I think that um, ironic is a perfectly fine word to use. Um, I think, I think, you know, I mean, I think that if somebody were to say it's a little bit hypocritical the way you've gone about this, um, yeah, I'm not saying you know, that. I mean, I think, I think you're not you're not saying that. Not well, saying. I think if somebody did say that, um, we could we could have a conversation about that as well. My point to all of this is just I, I want people to be more mindful about what they're doing. And um, the ultimate question, I think, should be, OK, given that identity capitalism is una unavoidable in some sense, given the society that we live in, um, at the same time as we're all engaging in identity capitalism, is there some substance behind it? Right. Like, am I accomplishing something good by having my book out there in the world, even though there is some identity capitalism along the road to get there? Um, and I hope the answer is yes. I, I know the I know the answer is going to be yes. Um, and, and I and I know that because um, it's, it's a intriguing, provocative and incredibly important book. But it's built on a, on a series of articles you've written, or at least I assume it's built on a series of articles you've written, all of which um, raise uh, most of which raise these kinds of issues. And, and also you do it in a way that's personal. And, and we have that in common. Um, I, I often am accused of being almost too personal in how I talk about law-type matters. Um, are you at all nervous that you're going to be put into a category? <laughs> and, you know, if we're having a panel on diversity, affirmative action, identity. Well, we're going to invite Nancy. If we're having a panel on um, the Commerce Clause, you teach constitutional law, or we're having a panel on some other substantive area you're an expert in, you may be fenced out of that because of this other um, brand that you're putting. I will tell you, I think this is a problem for a lot of people at non-elite schools like you and I. Yeah, I mean, I think that we all get put in boxes to yeah. some degree, yeah. and little boxes. I'm, what's that? Little boxes. There was a show called Weeds. Little Boxes. Weeds on Little Showtime. Boxes. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think I, I think that if people want to put me in the diversity, equity, inclusion <laughs> box, 
Um, that's okay. I mean, I do know more about the Equal Protection Clause and Title VII and other anti-discrimination statutes. I'm really interested in public accommodations right now. I know more about that than I do about the Commerce Clause. Honestly, if you're having a panel on the Commerce Clause, don't invite me. Like, you should probably <laughs> probably invite someone else. Like, maybe, maybe invite you. Um, but so, um, you know, I mean, I think there's there's a larger question here, like, what now, right? Yes. Like, do I just continue doing this for the rest of my life? Or yes. what if I want to take a different direction? Um, as you know, I've written about some other things, like sex segregation in, in, um, in, in sports and whether that's appropriate, right? And, you know, like, would it be hard for me to um, get out of the box that I've been put in and move into um, maybe um, a bigger box or <laughs> a different box? Um, and I do, I do think about that a little bit, but I think that, you know, I mean, there's a way in which um, a career as an academic is just a lifelong kind of identity crisis. Like, you know, am I who I think I am? Am I writing about the right things? Um, am I making a difference? Well, all of, all of. And we should of be self-conscious about. We should be self-conscious about that. I mean, we should be. Right? I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. And. Um, I've, I've, I've tried to get um, somewhat uncomfortable or I've, I've tried to allow myself to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Well, I, we only have a few minutes left, but I actually do want to talk about an earlier work of yours and tie it into this book. And, and maybe because okay. um, I, yeah. I, you wrote an article that was so brave and so courageous. And on social media, I saw the feedback that you got, which at points was really awful and, and, and ugly. But, but, but so Nancy wrote an article about women in sports. And if I get this wrong, tell me. But effectively what you were saying is for a state government to put women in a separate sport than men, which by definition means a lesser sport because there'll be less money, less crowds and everything. There should be a, a – we should apply heightened, heightened scrutiny to that. It's a sex segregation decision. And even when it comes to wrestling and other things, you, 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 you're open to data on this, but you think there has to be a good reason. And um, that article is really very consistent with your book, I think. If, 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 I think you can put the two together because we are making judgments about people, women in the, the first article, that we don't make about men in, in a way that is ugly, I think. Um, do you agree with that? I mean, is that – um, I do agree with that. And I appreciate the characterization of the article. I mean, that's actually exactly what I was hoping to get across. Um, not that any particular sport should be sex desegregated, but that in order for a state-sponsored sport to be sex segregated, it has to survive real intermediate scrutiny. And I think that for too long, um, courts and just government officials in general have kind of worked on the assumption that men are just better at sports than women. And I think that the evidence shows that it's actually more complicated than that. And there are some sports where men and women can be competitive against one another, for example, in wrestling at the same weight class, even if not overall. Um, and then there are some sports where women are actually better than men, like um, channel swimming, <laughs> for example. Like women tend to be better than men at channel swimming, and I could go into the physiology of that. Um, but yes, I did. I did I, that, that article was not received um, exactly with open arms by a segment of the of the um, the readership. I would say um, more men than women were. Um, troubled by the article, but what 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 was really striking to me was how little evidence they had. Like people would tweet at me and say things like um, desegregating sports at a high level or even at a high school level is madness. 
And that would be the tweet, you know, right. like no, 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 no link to data, no link to evidence or anything like that. Um, and I think that intermediate scrutiny asks more of us than that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think ascribing something to all women, which is not true for all women, is really dangerous and bad. And, and, and I think it's consistent with, with, with your book. So let, let's, let's, let's end this way. Um, and this has been great. And thank you so much for doing this. It's been. Oh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Um, but, I, but I do want to ask one, I guess, one final question. Um, you talk about identity entrepreneurs in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it strikes me, maybe, and this is my question, I think our society needs more people like you who are identity on entrepreneurs in a positive, non-stereotypical, thinking outside the box way. The last thing I want to say about that article you wrote about women's sports, men's sports, is you said something original. <laughs> that is so hard in our profession. To say something original that's not dumb is incredibly difficult because every, everything, <laughs> everything's been said before. Not what you said, though. And I think this book has a lot of stuff in there just like that. So my question is, how do you become a good identity entrepreneur? I mean, when I say how do you, not you, how would a, just take a white liberal male who wants to help become a good identity entrepreneur? Uh, So I think that part of it is just being self-aware. And so asking the question that you've just asked is already a really good start. And um, thinking about how to make your efforts, whether it's to you know promote equality for women, to promote equality for LGBTQ people, for people of color, whatever it might be, to, to do what you can to make your efforts um, substantive rather than just for show. And you know, so um, agreeing to mentor, let's say, a junior faculty member at your law school. I mean, we've all been asked to do this. Like uh, agreeing to mentor, let's say, a uh, a woman of color at your law school is one thing. And I think that that's a good start. Um, but rather than just agreeing to mentor her and having a conversation with her once a month or something like that. I mean, I think really, I mean, you have an extensive network, Eric, like, you know, everybody like thinking about, well, what can I do to make this commitment to mentorship? um, Not just for show, right. Um, Not just uh, to sort of nominally show that we're bridging racial divides, but to make it substantive, right? Like what can I do to, 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 to further this junior professor's career? Um, you know, and uh, so I think that self-awareness is a big part of it. Thinking about how to make tangible differences as opposed to, um, you know, just differences that are that are optical, that are for show is a big part of it. And um, I hope if people take just one or two things from the book that this issue of being more substantive and how, how we can all do it, I hope that's one of the things that they take. So thank you so much for asking that question. You know, I, I think I think your book is going to trigger very important conversations that need to be had. I think uh, this is my phrase: cosmic uh, cosmetic diversity. Cosmetic diversity is I a like real that, problem. Yeah. Is a real problem in our country. Your book is trying to solve that problem, and it's and it's and it's so important. Nancy, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much from you, not just from this book, but throughout your career. And it was it was it was great talking to you. Great talking to you too, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Nancy.